North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Dr. Victor Cha and I are joined again today by our favorite reporter, Mr. Christian Davies, who is the FT, Financial Times, sole bureau chief. Christian, welcome to Impossible State. Thank you so much. So, guys, I want to start out with, you know, obviously we have to talk about the Halloween tragedy in Seoul. Um, Christian, you're there. It's just an unspeakable tragedy, and you've been reporting on it. Um, Can you tell us really what's happening now? Well, the city and the country is obviously still in shock. You could certainly feel the event happened on Saturday night. We're recording Tuesday evening, Seoul time, and you're starting to see increasingly questions emerge. And probably uh, over the next few days, we will see pain turning to uh, more questions and maybe some anger. Um, I think just very quickly before we turn to that, I, I think I want to say uh, say two things. I mean, when I was writing our very brief report on on Sunday morning, um, I remember I used the word uh, stampede writing about this. And it's the kind of thing that sometimes you write without really thinking about it because you've never, in my case, I'd never covered an event like that, never really thought about an event like that. Obviously, coming from the UK, we have some tragic uh, examples of uh, crowd crushes at football stadiums and things like that. But upon reflection, upon re- reading about it more, uh, I realized, and you know, we, we very quickly cha- changed the word, that this would really be the wrong word to use about this. The word stampede suggests that a crowd panics and starts to sort of try to fight its way out and people climbing over each other. It implies that the victims are somehow responsible for uh, for what happened to them. This was a a crowd crush in which far too many people were in a confined space. Those in the center of the crush are helpless simply to do anything about it. And anyone who can do anything about it or anyone further out can't actually see what's happening in the middle. And therefore, no one involved uh, in terms of the crowd itself is, is at fault at all. The fault lies in the fact that so many people were squeezed into such a confined space with basically no crowd control uh, whatsoever. We've had the South Korean authorities acknowledging that very few police were there. And I'm really frankly astonished, and I don't want to um, get too too angry or anything, but I remember earlier in that day on Saturday, I uh, walked past two separate protests on the same day, one in Gwanghwamun in central Seoul and one, uh, another political protest closer to the, the presidential office down, down in Yongsan, which is very close to Itaewon. And on each of those occasions, there were thousands and thousands of police. 
And in Itaewon, there were hardly any. Now, the, the official explanation seems to be that when there is an uh, officially arranged event that there are organizers who, who coordinate with authorities and so on, lots of police are there, whereas Itaewon was a, not an arranged or organized event. I think it's frankly pathetic. This was not a spontaneous event that no one could have planned about. There were hours and hours, if not days, of um, people expressing concerns about this. We're already getting reports of people calling the equivalent of 911 four hours before this event happened, expressing their concerns with the authorities not responding. So this really requires serious, serious reflection. Uh, there is no fault of the people in the crowd involved. Perhaps, who knows, more will, will come about that, but there there is serious fault, lack of planning, lack of organization, and a lack of dynamism from the South Korean authorities. And I think this is um, going to emerge as, as time goes on. So before I turn to you, Victor, Christian, I just want to follow up and, and ask you, is the government and the police, how are they handling this now? Are they acknowledging fault? Are they you know, recognizing that something different could have been done? They are. And I wasn't obviously in Korea when there was this uh, terrible ferry disaster, I think in 2014, when 300 uh, young people died. My understanding is that the authorities this time have responded in a much more open and compassionate and communicative way than on that occasion. But I think this, this sort of organized event versus non-organized event distinction is really not good enough simply to say, well, it was a different kind of event. They, they seem to be saying, well, you know, they have put their hands up, but um, I'm speaking as an outsider. I don't think that's good enough. Um, this is a serious, serious failing. And uh, they seem to be communicating well now, and that's great, but that uh, doesn't make up for really serious failings that led to this. Victor, I want to bring you into this and just talk about your observations of uh, this horrible tragedy briefly. Where do you see this going? And is there anything the United States can do to assist? You know, these are our allies. This is something we feel acutely here in the United States. You know, you were telling me a couple of weeks ago that Korean is the most studied language in universities now uh, in the United States. Th this is a big deal here and around the world. How do you see this? It's an absolute horrific thing. It can't even, it's unimaginable that something like this could happen. You know, as you know well, I'm surrounded every day by college age students at the university. And so, you know, I taught my class last night and kids, you know, some of the students showed up in costume and all I could think about was what, would, what happened in Itaewon. I'm familiar with that alleyway where this tragedy happened. It is a very narrow and small space. And when they talk about the numbers of people they estimate to be there at the time, it's just, it's unimaginable how so many people ended up in that one space. And so it's just absolutely, it's absolutely terrible. I agree with Christian that right now there's, there's grief. There's a lot of grief in the country and shock, uh, but that grief will eventually turn into anger and uh, the government will be held, you know, completely accountable for it. Um, I think that uh, this government certainly learned from the mistakes of the Sewol Ferry disaster in which, you know, over 300 mostly high school age students were killed in a, in a ferry accident where the government did not respond well. And the president of South Korea at that time did not respond well. Her spokespeople saying essentially, well, this is, you know, this is a civilian 
uh, accident. Why should it's not a national security issue? Why should the president get involved? And that lack of responsiveness and lack of um, empathy was the beginning of the end, really, for for Park Geun-hye. The Yun government has learned from that, and as Christian said, you know, President Yun responded immediately. Within hours, he went and visited the site. They paid their respects. He and the the first lady paid their respects. Prime Minister Han Duk Su and the police agencies and uh, emergency response all have already apologized and admitted that they did not respond to this well. It remains to be seen if that will be enough, uh, because again, it's it's the sort of thing that I'm sure will also become a political weapon that will be used by one side against the other. So, uh, but um, this is a big. This is really a big test for the Yun government. You know, it's often things that you don't expect in an administration that can become sort of altering events, and and this this tragedy certainly could be one of them. I mean, I'm not I'm not talking about the uh, you know I'm talking about the politics because we're an analytical show and we have to look at what the meaning of this is. I mean, the human tragedy is just unspeakable, and then you watch the eyewitness accounts of this, and you can just see how horrible it is. But it's a but it is it's a huge test for this fairly new government, and um, uh, they're trying their best to respond to it, and they've clearly learned from mistakes that have been made by the past when we had that that ferry disaster. Well, our hearts certainly go out to the Korean people. This is just, again, we feel this acutely in the United States. I hate to turn to policy after talking about this, but that's what we do on this show. Christian, um, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a big deal between South Korea and the United States. Can you give us a sense of, you've written about this, and this is something you're plugged into. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Yes, well, I, I think there are there are two questions. I mean, first of all, uh, what are we talking about? Obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act is uh, an extremely long piece of legislation that covers all kinds of different areas. So when we talk about the Inflation Reduction Act in a Korean context, we're really talking about the provisions relating to electric vehicles and specifically the U.S. tax credits and subsidies um, related to that and how that affects uh, Korean companies. Now, the very brief summary is that the U.S. has uh, changed its subsidy regime to say that only uh, electric vehicles where the final assembly happens in the in North America, i.e. the US, Mexico or Canada, will qualify for these credits. And of course, this means that uh, vehicles uh, produced outside those three countries don't qualify. South Korea is a um, FTA partner of the United States, free trade uh, partner of the United States, but it is not in North America and therefore doesn't qualify. And this affects or will affect those um, electric vehicles produced by Hyundai, the uh, Korean car giant, until it's able to get its big new electric vehicle uh, plant, which is scheduled to open in Georgia in 2025 uh, uh, on stream. And so there's massive, massive anger <laughs> in Korean official circles, let's say. I'm not sure it's really penetrated to the to the um, to wider society, but about this moving of the goalposts as it's seen in Seoul. And uh, there's, a, there's a few reasons for this. I mean, first of all, Hyundai will, will probably take a hit from this. Secondly, this is a blatant violation of WTO rules, which I think US officials themselves certainly privately, probably openly um, uh, acknowledge in terms of um, some of the provisions in, uh, in the act. And of course, the, the sort of political context is that just months before signing this uh, legislation, Joe Biden was in South Korea 
uh, doing a victory lap over Hyundai's announcement of this big uh, Georgia plant. Uh, and he even said personally to Chairman Chung, the, the, the chairman of Hyundai, Mr. Chairman, we will not let you down. Uh, and then months later ca came this hit. Uh, and of course, this is in a wider context of Koreans getting increasingly anxious about what is coming next from the US in terms of uh, these moves in these high-tech sectors. I mean, we've had the Inflation Reduction Act, but of, of course, earlier in the summer, we had the CHIPS Act, and more recently, we've had a new round of export controls relating to cutting-edge chip-making equipment uh, and things like that. So there's this wider anxiety as well. The way I see it is, are the Koreans uh, justified in being annoyed? Yes. But are they justified in being as annoyed as they are? I would say they're not. In fact, I'd say that the level of, uh, of upset in Seoul is grossly disproportionate for a few reasons. First of all, it's really not clear how great the damage to Hyundai really will be. Um, not only because, uh, of course, this plant will probably come in 2025. Who knows? Maybe they'll be able to get it, get it open earlier uh, in response. But the legislation has all kinds of provisions in terms of the elimination of Chinese components from the, from the supply chain in order to qualify for these uh, credits, which are so tough to meet that it's not clear that Hyundai's competitors will be able to get a great advantage. But more importantly, and I think this has been totally lost in this discussion, and partly because there's been a little bit of a conspiracy of silence in Korea about this because no one wants to undermine Hyundai's lobbying effort, is that Korea is actually the biggest winner from these provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, because their battery companies are going to make an absolute killing from this legislation. First of all, their only competition in the global battery market, China, the Chinese companies being eliminated from the US, uh, from the US market. Secondly, this legislation envisages extremely generous subsidies for battery makers from FTA countries. And uh, um, just in, in a column I wrote earlier this autumn, uh, it's estimated by an analyst uh, from UBS that I spoke to that by 2026, the three Korean battery makers between them could be earning more than $8 billion a year from the US taxpayer from one of the credits in the legislation alone. This is the Advanced Manufacturing Production Credit. It's a conservative estimate of $8 billion per year uh, from 2026, obviously they'll be they'll they'll benefit before then as well, and this will only grow as the EV industry grows. So uh, South Korea is right to be annoyed, but it's not right to be rendering its garments, gnashing its teeth. And I think the position in in Washington, but maybe uh, Victor can say more about this, is on the one hand they sympathise because this legislation basically came from Congress and caught everyone by surprise to some extent. On the other hand. I think the, there's a growing impression the Koreans have crossed the line into whinging. And uh, given uh, how much they're going to benefit from this legislation, it's not clear that this massive lobbying effort from the Korean government isn't going to end up being even slightly counterproductive. You know, Victor, it's funny because here in Washington, we see more Hyundais on the road than just about any other car. And, you know, I'm not sure it's like that all over the United States, but it's certainly like that on the coasts. It strikes me, Christian's formulation of this is really, it's it's spot on and it's, it's also funny. Obviously, Hyundai's gonna be a big winner in the long run. Um, what's your take on this? And, and how much friction is this gonna cause, you know, with US, South Korea in the long term? 
So, I, so again, I, I mean, we wanted Christian on the show to talk about this because his reporting on this has really been great. You know, I think that in terms of the, what was it, rendering of garments and gnashing of teeth, this is the way Koreans operate, right? They, they put it into like 150% overdrive, right, to push as hard as they can, right, from the working level all the way up to the president of the country, right? But, you know, when they had a pull aside at the UNGA, right, that's all that President Yoon talked about, right, was the Inflation Reduction Act. And when Vice President uh, Harris went to Korea, you know, you know, she wanted to know, like, what are they going to ask me about? And like, there's only one thing they're going to ask you about. It's, and it's not North Korea. It's going to be a it's going to be about the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's just like 150% overdrive. And, you know, I think that's partly the Korean way because whether they get something or don't get something out of that, they need to demonstrate to the public and to themselves that they tried super, super hard to, to get it right. So that's first point. The second is, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the primary agent that gets hurt by this is Hyundai, right, about this tax credit issue. And but it's really, it's really unclear. I'm, I'm curious to see if there have been, Kristen, any analyses of what the impact on Hyundai would be, because as you said, the, uh, the act is so strict that it, um, it means that even U.S. cars are not going to be able to benefit from the tax credit if they have any Chinese parts in them, and it will take time to transition out of Chinese parts to take advantage of the tax credit. And, you know, in many ways, Korean companies, car makers are much more nimble than U.S. car makers, so they may move more quickly. Second, you know, my, my assumption is Hyundai is going to speed up the building of the plant. I think they've already announced some stuff about it in Georgia, so they'll probably try to get it up and running before 2025, which will shorten the period, this gap in which they will potentially be vulnerable because they won't take advantage of the tax credit. And then, um, you know, I think when Sullivan was initially asked about this, uh, Jake Sullivan, he said, well, on balance, we think this act benefits the Koreans. And that's, I love that term, conspiracy of silence, right? That there are uh, other elements in this act that really benefit South Korean EV battery, battery makers, right? SK and others, not just in the U.S. market, but in the global market vis-a-vis -vis China, right? Huge advantages uh, to, to South Korea. So, you know, the U.S. and the South Koreans have set up this bilateral channel to talk about it, right? Everybody in the U.S. government at the White House is very well aware of this and trying to look for solutions. I mean, looking backwards and looking forwards, I would make two last points. Looking forward, as Christian said, you know, we have these new export controls with regard to semiconductors to China that the United States uh, has decreed. And of course, that's not going to work unless the other, other countries, including countries like South Korea, are willing to participate in those sorts of export controls. So the point of this is that there are there are asks that we have coming down the road, um, and the the context in which we do that has to be better than look we screwed you on IRA, but here you should help us on this. And especially if we're talking about export controls that go beyond semiconductors to AI and other sorts of things, you know Koreans are important partners in that. So. In other words, you know, if we're going to look forward, they, they have to find some, the administration has to find some solution or partial solution to this problem because the context going forward is there will be more asks of South Korea and others. Looking backwards, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons this happened is that I think, frankly, that um, the South Koreans were not on their game here in D.C., 
right? The in particular, you know, you had a gap in, in ambassadors, like when a lot of this was coming forward, or maybe it was the end at the end of the last administration. I can't remember, but there was a gap there where you know the South Koreans didn't have an ambassador like the Canadians did, and like others that really worked hard to try to ensure that they could avoid getting hurt by this. And I think looking backwards, that was one of the problems for the South Koreans. They had this gap there. The Korean ambassador is terrific. Cho Taeyong is a terrific ambassador, but he wasn't here, right, when a lot of this was happening. And I think looking backwards, that was part of the problem for Korea as well. So on on the narrow issue of those provisions, as I said, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear. I think you can you can really measure the harm to Hyundai over this in months, whereas you can measure the benefits to the Korean battery industry in decades, really. And I, I think that's the way I would put it. But of course, as Victor suggests, this raises this bigger question of uh, how US allies, and of course, Korea is not the only one. And of course, uh, for example, European countries are very upset uh, as well about, you know, what is America's strategy really? And I think it, it's this confusion over these two terms, friendshoring and reshoring, which uh, to the uninitiated, but I'm sure none of your listeners are among the uninitiated, but um, you know, friendshoring is is really trying to get um, manufacturing and supply chains moved um, from, let's say, less friendly countries to countries that are close to the United States. And then reshoring is moving these things to the United States itself. And of course, there's a suspicion that the U.S. is talking about friendshoring, in other words, moving things to its allies, un- but under that cover, they're actually, in the end, just just engaging in sort of blatant protectionism and um, and putting itself first. So you hear these kinds of things. You know, Biden's policy is is just America first with a you know with a friendlier face and all this kind of stuff. And and really in Korea, I mean, it is an overreaction, but you hear these words about betrayal and stab in the back and so on. And uh, I think it's definitely a risk for the U.S. for that those messages to be confused. They really have to uh, spell out. Now, uh, one U.S. official said to me, which I thought was quite clever, and I'm trying to work out whether it was sort of just a clever point or actually a very sort of substantive point, which was the IRA is both. It's reshoring on the manufacturing side uh, of these EVs, but it's friendshoring when it comes to the battery supply chain, because, of course, it's not just batteries. It's all of the critical minerals and so on that go into that. So um, countries like Chile, Australia, Canada, which are FTA countries of the US, they're going to be uh, big beneficiaries of this reorientation of the supply chains. And this is going to benefit those, those countries. The question for Korea, which I think they're discussing right now, is, is Korea actually going to be a winner or a loser from this intensifying US-China competition? Uh, and this decoupling. And the interesting t- thing for me as an outsider here is the conventional wisdom in Korea really seems to be that Korea is going to be a loser from it. <laughs> they don't like it. They don't like being pushed around over chips. They don't like being pushed around over batteries. But but to be honest, I'm not so sure they are going to be a loser. I think you can make a very strong case, uh, as with batteries, that if we are starting to see the emergence of a sort of walled-off US-led high-tech economy with China um, excluded, or at least it's China's participation, not excluded, but it's, it's participation limited. Korea across a very wide range of sectors is potentially set to really benefit from that and capitalize from that. So one question is whether Korea should continue to resist and express resentment at this process or whether it actually starts to embrace it or not. I'm not saying there'll be no cost to Korea, but I don't think it's as clear cut that it's bad for Korea 
at all. And not to mention, uh, the less Chinese involvement there are in these, in these technologies, the more important, relatively speaking, Korea becomes, uh, and that could have positive security implications for Korea, the more critical it becomes to the, uh, to the Western alliance. And Victor, I know that our friends at the White House certainly understand better than anybody that a big part of this is exactly what you said, Korea going 150% overdrive to, you know, get what they need to get or show that they're trying to get what they need to get. But is this something that the Biden administration and the Congress need to convey to the American people that that's really what this is all about? Or, or is there something else they need to do? Um, so I thank you, Andrew, for picking up on my 150% overdrive pun when we're talking about cars. I appreciate that. As you guys know well, this you know this is a huge issue in Korea. Uh, it completely eclipsed the extended deterrence discussion when this happened. But it's not a big issue like in the U.S. general public. Like they they, they pretty much you know don't really know a lot about it. But you know I think the the White House certainly has been seized with the issue again. They've set up a bilateral channel with South with South Korea to try to work through some of this. I think in the end, they're going to try to close the gap that Kristen talked about. Like we're talking about a gap that's measured in months, right, in terms of when Hyundai can get their plant up and online in Georgia. And so trying to close that gap through whatever means. But the benefits for Korea in the long term really are measured um, in, in a much longer time frame. You know, in the end, I think, you know, the, this Korean, whether they should embrace or not embrace friendshoring, reshoring, um, they feel like they're going to be a loser. So I think at the core, what the, this comes down to when I talk to lots of Korean friends in the government and outside of government is this idea that uh, they're going to be a loser out of this. this. is not a winning proposition. It's based on a view that eventually things will, we want things to get back to normal, right? Eventually we'll get to a point where things will get back to normal, where it can be positive some on both sides, both with the United States and with China. And what, Koreans haven't embraced yet is that we're not, we're never going back to that, right? The new normal is this, right? And that there are choices that have to be made. And, you know, uh, some of these choices mean, like if we look at EV batteries, that Korea can be dominant in the U.S. and in the global market, but they will lose, they'll be a loser if they look at it in terms of the China market, right? There's no denying that they'll be a loser because if that happens, like there's no way the Chinese are going, you think the Chinese are not going to retaliate against South Korea? I mean, they're going to re retaliate big time with economic coercion. So it's, um, you know, these are choices that are framed as winning or losing based on a view that what we're experiencing now is temporary and that we can go back to something that's more normal. But unfortunately, I think this is a new normal. It's the same way they sort of look at this question of how much more they should do in Ukraine, where, you know, they, they feel like, well, they really, they really don't want to do more. They don't want to send lethal equipment to Ukraine because they don't want to upset Russia. I mean, they've already joined all the sanctions uh, against Russia and Russia is going to sanction them no matter what. Like you can't be half pregnant on this. But again, it's that is based on this. This hand wringing is based on this mentality that this is a temporary period, and we can go. We're we're hedging until it goes back to normal, right? And it's not going back to normal. So hedging in the end is not the right strategy to pursue when the context now are really binary choices. I think that's the dilemma that strategically that's the dilemma that Korea faces. 
Australia has made their choice, right? They have clearly made their choice. Um, Japan has clearly made their choice, but Korea hasn't embraced that choice yet. It raises this uh, interesting question. You know, does South Korea really even have a foreign policy? Does it even need a foreign ministry? Or why don't they just set up sort of a bigger press office in the, in the Ministry of Trade and Industry? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the Korean establishment, you know, policy establishment, has been more affronted and upset by the IRA legislation than by Russia invading Ukraine. I mean, that, that, that sounds... Maybe that sounds an unfair comparison because, you know, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine doesn't um, directly affect Korea. But the country cares more really about one company, seems to care more about one of its own companies than what's going on in the rest of the world. And, you know, I was open minded about this question, but I'm increasingly reaching the view that Korea is essentially strategically inert and simply you know, responds to the trade conditions around it and doesn't really make much effort to, to shape them. A strategically minded country is one where the government says no to its companies. You know, I know you'd like to trade. I know this would be good for your business, but you can't do it because there are more important things. And yet, do you really ever see the Korean government saying that to its companies? I, I'm not sure. The interesting case now is it's the U.S. government that's saying no to Korean companies. In other words, it's, it's the U.S. government through its legislation and through its export controls, which is shaping Korea's strategic direction. And Korea is, is almost an observer in its, own, in its own foreign policy as a result of that. Um, because, you know, talk about sanctions when it comes to Ukraine, you know, these were a result of U.S. pressure. Korea did not enthusiastically embrace them, you know. Would, would Korea really have imposed any sanctions if it was up to Korea? We'll never know, but I, I'm highly skeptical. Maybe it sounds a little bit harsh, but uh, you know, this, this sort of inert, passive, and in many ways actually unprincipled approach um, may have been you know, befitting a country that was rising over decades. But you know, this is a country that has uh, aspirations to be a leading country of the world, you know, Global pivotal state, as the President Yoon has, uh, has put it. So, you know, is it going to actually start thinking strategically or is it just going to keep dragging its feet and moaning um, when other countries who are responsible for the global order uh, take difficult decisions? Well, this is a good time to transition. And, and I want to get your view on what Christian just said, Victor. But it also, you know, right now there are strategic talks happening in the United States between the South Korean defense minister and the United States Department of Defense. So, Victor, I want your reaction to what Christian just said. So I would say that when you talk to members of the UN government, that their aspiration is to do what Christian is talking about. Their aspiration is to point Korea in a strategic direction uh, that goes beyond sort of the traditional hedging when it comes to great power conflict based on values and support of the liberal international order, it's a very different sort of agenda than we saw during the previous administration. And so at least in terms of their talking points, they've been, they've been on point, if you will. But, you know, steering a country's strategic direction is like trying to change the direction of an aircraft carrier, right? It takes time. Um, and it also, you know, goes to show the power of the big conglomerates in Korea. It's not easy for Korean governments to say no to Hyundai or Samsung or any of these other 
companies. And that's where the rub is. And, and as in every democracy, there's the domestic politics of it, right? If the UN government wants to go in run, one direction, you can be you can be pretty sure that the opposition is going to drag their feet and, and, and attack them for it in every in every possible way. So uh, but the broader point, I think, is I think it's well taken. You know, whether we're talking about sanctions on Ukraine or supply chains, the United States, really the United States and Japan have been sort of setting, Australia to some extent, setting the direction and Korea is having to make decisions about whether it comes along or not. Hopefully it would come along some more. But again, I think at the core, it gets down to two things. One is a realization that that this is not a temporary environment, that this is the environment in which they must now uh, make policy. Um, and two, there needs to be some sort of solution to deterring Chinese economic coercion. Because in the end, what it comes down to is every decision, whether it's on semiconductors or joining uh, uh, the Mineral Security Partnership or joining the Quad or anything else for Korea, it always comes down to concerns about Chinese economic coercion, economic retaliation, as it is for many other countries in the Indo-Pacific. So um, so I think that's the the other element of it. On the SCM meeting this week, you know, very clearly, you know, the defense ministers are meeting. Big topic, obviously, will be North Korea, what, you know, whether they'll do a seventh nuclear test. And what sort of things the U.S. and South Korea can do to enhance extended deterrence? Our satellite imagery at CSIS um, shows that there's a lot of activity at the Sohei launch site. That's where they launched the ICBM. There's a lot of construction activity going on there. For what purpose is not clear, um, but there's a, a lot of activity. We've reported on it. 38 North has reported on it. And then in terms of the nuclear test site, it looks like it's prepared and ready to go. And I think Kim Tae-hyo... The deputy national security advisor said that it's possible they could do more than one test, that if they're testing tactical nuclear devices, I think he said to the press that we could see a succession of these. The construction at the Sohei satellite uh, site doesn't look like anything's happening imminently. So, you know, it, you could, we could have a scenario in which they test, I think, sometime around U.S. midterm elections and uh, in advance of all the multilateral meetings taking place at the end of November, right? The EAS, the G20, um, all of these happening in Southeast Asia. And they could test multiple nuclear devices followed by an ICBM test. It could be something of that nature. So, of course, we're all just guessing when it comes to this, but I'm sure this will be a big topic of discussion between the defense ministers, as well as doing things to enhance, uh, enhance extended deterrence. So I want to tip our listeners off to a, a, an article Victor has coming out in Foreign Affairs magazine on Chinese economic coercion. That's coming soon, so look for that. But Victor and Christian, I want to ask you, along the lines of North Korea, which we haven't really talked about until now, the activity that we're seeing, the testing that we, we know is coming, you know, there's an argument that we may need to live with North Korea as a nuclear state. Can you guys both weigh in on that? We already are. You know, we, we may have to live with it. I mean, we are living with it on the nuclear test uh, test point. I agree. I, I think if it's a test like like the ones before, then maybe uh, we'll all go through the motions. Um, but a test of a tactical nuke or, or a warhead that could be used on a tactical nuke um, would be a category change. That would be a signal we're moving into a new phase of threat. 
Um, these are precisely the weapons that we're worried that Vladimir Putin could use on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and as one analyst put it to me, you know, nuclear wars are more likely to end with ICBMs, but they're more likely to begin with tactical uh, nuclear weapons, precisely because they are less dangerous. They're still incredibly dangerous, but they're obviously less dangerous than the, than the largest nuclear weapons. Uh, and therefore, they're more likely to be used. And of course, there's also potential that there's a wider number of people who could have their finger on the metaphorical trigger, and therefore there's more, more room for um, miscalculation and so on. The big picture, it seems to me, is North Korea is a nuclear weapon state. It's not a question of uh, sending them a certificate in the post saying um, we are pleased with it or we're not pleased with it. I know there's been a discussion including in my own newspaper, the extent to which or, or how that should be recognized or not recognized or accepted or not accepted. Um, but I think the fact is that not only is it a nuclear weapon state in terms of you know, its possession of nuclear weapons, but more importantly, nothing is stopping its development from uh, uh, continuing at the moment. I mean, they basically have an open road. The international environment is very different to how it was five years ago when they lasted nuclear tests and when they had their ICBM tests in, in the summer of um, 2017. The UN Security Council is now paralyzed. Obviously, Russia, but also China, seem to now prioritize their rivalry with the United States and their, their um, bad feelings of the United States towards their not want North Korea to develop uh, nuclear weapons. The sanctions regime, I know there's a big discussion about whether it could be implemented better and so on, but I think no one can see the sanctions regime getting any tighter than it has now. North Korea during the pandemic imposed on itself restrictions far harsher than any of the international sanctions. Um, and still it continued to develop these weapons. So uh, as I think of the point I've made on the podcast before, deterrence, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with deterrence, but deterrence is not a solution to this problem, which is that North Korea is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, whether recognizing its nuclear power and sitting down for arms control is a realistic option, uh, I don't know. Victor will have uh, views on that. Um, but certainly that's what people are increasingly saying. Yeah, that's exactly why I'm asking this. And, you know, Victor, I suppose we have made very clear to the Kim regime that any nuclear attack on the United States or its allies, whether it's tactical or it's a big nuke, will be met with the end of that regime. Is that still stand? And, and you know, what else can we possibly do here? Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's uh, that what you quote, quote, Andrew, is a clear statement out of the Nuclear Posture Review that was released last week as part of the broader release of the National Defense Strategy. And it was pretty explicit language about how the United States would respond. I think the other piece of that that gets less attention, but that I think is equally important, is there is a statement in there about opportunistic aggression, meaning that if the United States is engaged in a contingency in Taiwan or in Europe, and there's opportunistic aggression by an unnamed third party, that the that the U.S. response could be a nuclear response to that. So about the strongest language that you could that you could use. Yeah, I mean, I we are living with a nuclear North Korea today. But the main issue I had with some of the discussion on social media about let's just accept them and it's a nuclear weapon state engaged in arms control is that it's not a either or proposition. It's not like you have to accept them as a nuclear weapon state to engage in arms control. 
you can still hold to your position of denuclearization, which the U.S. government is going to do. It's in the national defense strategy. Ned Price at the State Department said it. He said, we're not changing our policy. But you can still engage in a negotiation that focuses on threat reduction and arms control. I mean, if we ever were to get back into a negotiation with North Korea, what would we be doing? We'd be freezing the nuclear Yongbyon site again, right? We'd be trying to get a fissile material ba- uh, production ban. We'd be trying to get a test ban. I mean, these are all threat reduction and arms control. If we ever got to the point of a declaration where we were counting nuclear warheads and, and, and missiles, we'd want to try to negotiate just sort of a, a partial reduction or decommissioning of those capabilities, right, which is all part of arms control. So at least from my perspective as a former negotiator, I don't see any gain from accepting them formally as a nuclear weapon state. And I think in many ways, it's, it's, it's just a non-starter from a U.S. policy perspective. Now, Bonnie Jenkins uh, at the State Department got made a lot of news because she said all North Korea needs to do if it wants to engage in arms control talks is pick up the phone. And that got a lot of news in South Korea. I mean, you know, Bonnie Jenkins, she's from that bureau. So that's what they're supposed to do is right, negotiate arms control. So I don't think she was saying we accept them as a nuclear weapon state and let's negotiate arms control. It wasn't a change in U.S. policy. It's just noting the thing that I just noted, which is not, this is not a zero-sum choice. It's not either or. I mean, I think the possibility of negotiations are very low right now. But you never know after they do all this testing and after, you know, we try to go to the U.N. for sanctions, we, you know, China and Russia veto, we do unilateral sanctions after we go through that whole cycle. You never know. There may be an opportunity at that point to sit down and talk. That's at least what the cycle has shown has shown in the past. I agree with Christian on the impact of COVID on the sanctions debate. I mean, I, you know, I always say that what North Korea did to itself was John Bolton's dream, right? The idea of cutting off the trade with China, border trade with China. I mean, that, that's John Bolton's dream. But I do still think that there are things that can be done, particularly in terms of trying to target North Korean cyber activities. The National Security Council last April went public saying that North Korea's recent, their theft of cryptocurrency, which they've been doing a lot of, that a good portion of that is going to finance the weapons program. And so efforts in that respect, it was included in, in the May UN Security Council resolution to go after some of these entities, but the Russians and the Chinese vetoed that resolution. So I still think that those are areas that that, that we should go after. And the Chinese should care about it because, um, again, this is public knowledge. It was in in press reporting and expert reporting. You know, North Korea is turning that cryptocurrency into renminbi. So the Chinese should care about this, right? And if they don't care about it, they should be secondary sanctioned for it. So, So I think there's still work that could be done in that respect. I'm very skeptical about the prospect of uh, being able to squeeze North Koreans on crypto and cyber. I mean, first of all, those U.S. law enforcement actions that have been taken, um, they can punish people who engage with the North Koreans, but none of it actually stops what the North Koreans are doing. Um, They even, I think, sanctioned a piece of software recently, which, first of all, I think is actually may even be against, um, against U.S. law. But essentially, you know, doesn't punish or stop the North Koreans at all. The way that the world of crypto is going, we're going to have increasingly decentralized exchanges, which means that the choke points that we may have when it comes to changing crypto into fiat currency are going to be reduced because they're um, 
they're going to be decentralized. And secondly, the more that uh, crypto can be used to pay for things in the in the real economy, the less that North Korea will have to exchange crypto into fiat currencies anyway. So crypto is moving in a direction that will benefit North Korea massively. And secondly, when it comes to you know cyber, there's a huge asymmetry because North Korea is not connected and its infrastructure is not connected to the web and to um, digital infrastructure in the way that ours is. I mean, just as an example, you know, North Korea could probably shut down the Seoul subway if it wanted to with a cyber attack. But South Korea can't shut down the Pyongyang subway because Pyongyang subway isn't digitally collected in the way that Seoul's is. So it's very hard to target North Korea's cyber attacks without going very, very big. In other words, you know, cutting off all their electricity or totally cutting off their access to the internet altogether. So they have this asymmetry advantage, which is they're a very unconnected digitally society, yet with a fearsome but very specifically located and uh, located in a small number of people uh, uh, cyber capability. So, um, you know, in a sense, the cyber debate um, replicates the, um, the debate in the real world, which is ultimately not only is uh, North Korea's offensive capability growing, but it really doesn't, I really can't see um, what pressure can be really brought upon them. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. But my point is some effort has to be made uh, you know, to target some of these more, uh, these, you know, well-identified in the press and known groups that must have assets somewhere that, that you can freeze and hold. But, but yeah, I take the point. It's not, it, it's not easy and it is an asymmetric game. Gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both for your time. It's late in Seoul. Christian, we should let you go. Victor, as always, great to be with you. We'll do this again soon. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.